his social life It's the Darren Show The Darren Show Don't ask if he's single You already know Cause it's the Darren Show A simple name For a simple guy With a simple face It's the Darren Show Hello everyone and welcome to a very special edition of the Darren Show this month I am actually going to be uh, I'm on location the first time in Terran Show history, uh, with a very, very special guest. I'm very excited to uh, to bring to you this this month, Derek Lavasser. How you doing, Derek? What's up, guys? Uh, full disclosure, Terran just showed up at my house, uninvited, yeah. and just said, hey, I found out where you live. I pulled a detective move on you, <laughs> and I'm coming in. No, I'm glad to have you here. Welcome to my home. I'm glad to be the first, hopefully not the last. Yes, uh, super exciting. Uh, I, I had to, I did, I did the uh, the morning update a little early today Appreciate and then that. I got over to uh, to Derek's house and uh, we're here to, uh, to to chat for a while. Absolutely. Before the kids get home and make our podcast terrible. Yeah. <laughs> we have a live update from Tenley. Then that may not be good. Yeah. Um, I actually, uh, for, for you Terran Show listeners, I actually haven't had a chance to talk about this on a Terran Show podcast yet, but I recently made Terran Show shirts. Sweet. Um, yes, that uh, are now available for purchase. I I would have brought you one, but I actually I'm, don't I'm have, a little offended. Actually. I don't have any myself yet, <laughs> other than the one that I have. Oh, I expect one in the mail. Absolutely. Well, you know what? I, I I can send you one now because I know you're. It's true. Yeah, that's that's true. That's true. <laughs> we didn't. I never realized that you were on the East Coast. I never mm-hmm. realized that. I always assumed that you were in L.A. with Rob and all them. So obviously, we were talking. I think through through text and. When I learned you were so close, I'm like, hey, you know, let's just do it. Yeah. Let's just do it in person. It's it's funny because when I auditioned for the podcast, the first season that we were going to cover was Big Brother Canada. And mm-hmm. so my, my video audition for the podcast was a parody of the Big Brother Canada preseason interviews. And so as a joke, I like, they like they had like a graphic and pointed to their graphic showing where they were from. And as mm-hmm. a joke, I crossed out Boston and I put in Canada. <laughs> and so to this day, there are still people that think that I actually live in Canada because of that. Uh, you could have told me anywhere. I wouldn't have known. All I see is that little dark room that you're yeah. in, and I have no clue where you are. It's uh, very discreet. It could yeah. be in your mom's basement for all I know. I exactly. No it's, uh, <laughs> you never know. It's any, and anything could be happening. There. And now I know it's funny. When Taryn, the other day, I gave uh, Taryn my address, and I said, you know, if you tell anybody this address, I'll find you. Kidding, not really. But he's like, <laughs> yeah. no, I, I don't doubt it. So yep. Taryn is, has to sign an NDA before he leaves, and... He's, uh, now we're best friends because he's, you're probably one of the only people who know where I live in the Big Brother community. There you go. Yeah. You must be special. I'm very trustworthy. Yes. Clearly. You are very trustworthy. Yeah. You have a trustworthy face. I, if, if Derek trusts me, I feel yes. like, uh, I feel like that's, that's, that's a sign that I could do well in the Big yes. Brother house. Yes, absolutely. You convinced the puppet master. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Derek, this podcast, it's, uh, it's about you. So uh, I want to I want to talk yeah I want to talk about you um, you obviously you went on the on Big Brother you were a an undercover detective that was the sort of role you went in as um, when you were growing up did was that always your plan to be a, to be a police officer No it really wasn't I I you know and this is a story you hear a lot but I was a troubled kid I was. Um, I was raised by my mother. I was one of four, and I had some. My, my stepdad came into the picture when I was like seven or eight, and I, I had some issues with control. And you know, like a lot of kids, I just didn't have that father figure in my life. Got a lot of fights, messed up a lot of things, and um, got myself into some trouble. And 
for me, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So when I when it was time to pick a career, uh, a college to go to, I, I based it on baseball. Mm-hmm. I had a couple scholarship offers, and I wanted to play baseball. So um, I decided to go to Mitchell College in Connecticut, and I took criminal justice because out of all the you know curriculum they had, that was the one that sounded the coolest. It was really the only reason. So I go to college, I get my associate's degree in criminal justice. I had been working at the summer program where I was from, Central Falls, Rhode Island, with kids. I loved working with kids, underprivileged kids. Just it, I felt like it was you know a reflection of myself. I saw myself in those kids. And every year I would work there, and every year the chief of uh, police would come by and say hello and speak to the kids, and, and we got friendly. And after graduating with my associate's degree, I was planning on going to a four-year school, Roger Williams University in Bristol, Rhode Island, and I was going to continue to play baseball. And that summer, they were taking applications for the police department, and you only need an associate's degree. So the chief came to me and said, hey, why don't you apply? You're not going to get hired more than likely. You're only 20 years old, but it's a good experience, especially if you're, going, you're taking you know, criminal justice as your major. And so I said, okay, I'll apply. And it was probably, uh, I don't know, three or 400 people who applied. It was a very... Um, not a lot of spots available and a lot of people at, at that time, it's not the same in law enforcement now, but it was a very sought after position. And so I took the, the, the written test, I took the physical testing, the psychological testing, and I finished first. So I remember the chief bringing me in and he basically said, hey, come by my office, I wanna to talk to you. I didn't know what it was about. I really didn't, I'm 20 years old, I'm on my summer off and getting ready to go back to school. I didn't know if I was in trouble. I didn't know if I embarrassed him on one of the answers I gave, I didn't know. Brings me in his office and he says, listen, you know, uh, I'm in an interesting position right now because I did not plan on hiring you. I wanted you just to get this experience like I told you, but you finished in the top of the class and now the question becomes, how can I not offer you the position? And uh, are we allowed to swear on this podcast? Go ahead. Okay. If I offend anybody, I'm sorry, but um, this was his saying, not mine. And he said, listen... I want I wanted to tell you two things. We don't hire punks and we don't hire pussies. Are you either one of those things? And I said, no, sir, I'm not. And he said, well, if you feel like you could reflect this city and represent the people that live here in the way it needs to be done, I want to offer you the position. And I did not accept it right there because this was not something I had anticipated. I went home, I thought about it, and I realized that you know, if I really wanted to start, I knew I wasn't going to play major leagues at that point. I wasn't good enough. And it was an opportunity to start my career. And, and, and I was poor at that point, a college student, like most people, I was poor. And so I said, you know what, I'm gonna go for it. And I decided to unenroll from Roger Williams and start my career as a police officer. And it kind of, it became my passion, I will tell you that. Mm-hmm. Once I got into it, I realized like, wow, this is really freaking cool. Yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy. I feel like that's kind of how it happens for a lot of people. You sort of just, you find, you, you, you might surprise yourself at like, whoa, I'm actually, this is something I'm good at and I had no idea. Um, and I get, well, I guess if I'm good at it, I guess I should yeah explore this path. Absolutely. And I, th- there's no better feeling than, you know, like I said, when I was a kid, there were some times without going into the details, this isn't a therapy session, but the police were called to my house. Mm-hmm. And I remember as a kid calling 911 and hearing the cops come and as the sirens got closer, I felt better. I felt safer than the cops would get there and I knew that everything was going to be okay. And to be that guy, be that person when I walked into the house 
and I would see those kids' faces, I knew what they were feeling. And there's no better feeling than that because mm-hmm. you're, you're never going to let anything happen to them. And so that for me, like, I can't explain it in words, but like, that's a feeling you never forget, especially yeah. if you experienced it yourself as a child. Yeah. So it was a, it was a good feeling, and I, I loved what we I loved the guys I, and, and gals that I worked with. I loved helping people, and there was that gratification. I'm not going to lie, of catching the bad guy because mm-hmm. it is a chess match, and you know you, you always I always want to win. Yeah, yeah. I, I I was I my my childhood also had some some police involvement. Um, it, I, isn't it amazing how many do? Yeah, yeah. Um, not all not always in the best way. Yeah. Like honestly, like you know, I I don't know if I necessarily saw that as like uh, like a good thing. You know, I, I was I was kind of scared of of police huh. when I was a kid. Um, do you do you get that sometimes? More so now. Yeah. More so now. Um, with the environment we're in, police are not seen. It's so funny because I got hired in 2003 slash four because I graduated the academy in 2004. Um, and when I got hired, I felt like Pete, there was more respect with, within law enforcement. And it's only been, we're only in 2019 and it's mm-hmm. a completely different world now. So I did see it. I definitely saw it, but not as much. And it's, 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 it's tough. For somebody like myself, because I would never do anything to hurt anyone, mm-hmm. but there is that preconceived notion from some people that cops are bad people and you have to be careful. And, and I understand it because there are videos out there, there are, there's, there's proof out there that some police officers are not doing the right thing. And that's unfortunate. And I think it's on good police officers to call them out. Mm-hmm. You know, I just went to Pittsburgh for a press conference about what I thought was bad police work. Yeah. And it was a tough moment for me because it's the first time I've ever done that on that level. and uh, But it has to be done because I think in order to gain the trust back, and I don't know if it ever will be back to where it was for law enforcement, but I think they have to know that there are good cops out there that are willing to call out their fellow brothers and sisters um, for the sake of building that trust again with the community. So I can see where you're coming from. I don't, when people say, yo not all cops are good or I had this bad experience, it's not surprising to me. Mm-hmm. There are good cop, bad cops, there are bad lawyers, there are bad doctors, and, and, and law- cops are in a position to take away someone's freedom. Yeah. So it's a scary thought yeah. to think that someone can have that much power and not be, you know, have the best intentions. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think for me, when I, when I was a kid, it was, it was, you know, especially less, you know, now the sort of modern take on police and more just like, uh, like why are, why are people in my house? Like, you know, uh, why, why were they, why were they called? Like, um, it was, you know, I, I think that, uh, I mean, I, th- I think that, you know, be, being in that situation, I, I can relate to your desire to want to be the person that steps in and helps people because I feel like I had that same drive and, and part of me still does. Like I, for a long time, I wanted to be uh, like somebody that worked with with kids, with, mm-hmm. with troubled kids, to to help them out of situations like that. Um, you know, do do you, is that is that like do you feel like that drive came from from that experience as a kid? I do, I definitely do, and I didn't realize it mm-hmm. at the time. I didn't realize it till I put on the uniform. But yeah, absolutely, helping kids and, and just anybody. And I know that's kind of like a a blanket statement. But that feeling, that gratification when someone says, like, thank you. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, I had a situation right before I retired where, uh, you know, we got, we, we, we ran into a burning building and saved seven people, you know, and then I got to meet those people afterwards. Um, you know, I remember going into that house and honestly not knowing if I was going to come out. 
my brother's a firefighter and the one thing he always told me was don't be a hero man like i always hear these stories about cops going in because they get there before us and then they we have to go in there and get them yeah and so this was in 2017 and, and i remember i just couldn't help it i ran in and so did a couple other officers and i remember running into a room and it being so filled with smoke and the fire above our heads i couldn't see anything but i could feel a little arm and it was a little seven-year-old boy and he was laying next to his parents and we, we, we pulled him out of there. And in that moment, I was just worried about getting more people. Mm -hmm. And we got everybody out. And I really didn't get the chance to speak to them. But then a few months later, Red Cross came in. They gave us an award. And I got to meet them and to see their faces. And to, you know, they didn't have smoke alarms. So to know that they wouldn't be with us if it weren't for what we did. When they say thank you, it's a different type of thank you. Yeah. It's not like, hey, thanks for letting me go. You know, over you at a, at a traffic light. It's a different type of thank you. But... It's a feeling I really can't describe unless you actually experience it yourself. You'll never really know. Yeah. And I got to do that a lot. So, yeah, being a, being a kid, being in those situations where I would look at those cops and I might not say thank you, mm -hmm. but they knew how I felt and, and, and being able to give back and do the same for others. Yeah, it's a win for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's it must, it must add like a level of uh, feeling fulfilled, I think. Mm -hmm. Like... I, I, I know for myself that uh, I still feel like there are, like, my, I, I don't think my life will feel fulfilled until I feel like I have done more to help others and, and that sort of thing. Um, certainly, I, I don't necessarily expect myself to ever run into a burning building. <laughs> you never know. But, um, you never know. Yeah, you know, uh, but, but I think that, like, having, having done so and knowing that, that you uh, contribute to 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 helping other people in that way i think must be uh there's gotta be, there's like something gotta be something deep down that just feels like satisfied not like satisfied like you're, you're done with it but satisfied like that you have fulfilled a, a, a sort of a desire to to right the wrongs that have been done to to you in the past and yeah. to help help other people um moving forward yeah yeah i mean i i retired in 2017 the end of 2017 and when I was leaving, I had done 13 years at that point. You know, I, I kind of, I was going, I was torn because I had opportunities to do other things, mm -hmm. but I had this passion for law enforcement. But when I look back at it, like I sacrificed a lot to be yeah. a cop and I see it now. And again, this, this is a therapy session, but some of the things I experienced and some of the people know about it on, especially in the big brother community, because some of them called me out on it when I was in the house, I was in a shooting in 2007 and I, I went through a lot. And I gave up a lot of my my 20s to help others. And that, I'm not trying to sit here on this pedestal to say that's why I did it. But I, in looking in hindsight and seeing some of the things that I did, I know I served my community to the best of my ability. And, and that was part of the reason that I was okay with leaving because I felt like I had given all I could. And I got into a situation where I had ch uh, a child at that point mm -hmm. and I had two children at that point. And I realized the sacrifices that law enforcement officers make both physically, but more so mentally. Yeah. When you see those things on a daily basis, it changes you. And I could feel that change within my own household because you become skewed. But my, my willingness to leave and my final decision to leave was based on the fact that I felt like I had given enough and I still find ways to help. I have a show that literally helps people who feel like they're not getting any help from law enforcement. So right. I'm continuing that mission, but in a different way. Mm -hmm. But I definitely feel like if something happened to me tomorrow and I can reflect back on what I had done up to 35 years old, I'm happy. 
I'm happy. I can look back and be proud of what I did. I could always do more, but I can look back and say, you know what, what you did it, you know, what you did and what you didn't do, it wasn't for lack of effort. You gave it your best. So I think if you can do that in any field, whatever you're doing, whether it's law enforcement, whether it's podcasting, whether it's helping one person, you know, on an emotional level, if you look back and you're like, I, I, I didn't turn my back on that person or that thing that I took undertook, I think you, you'll look back and reflect and be happy with what you did. Makes a lot of sense. Um, can, can you talk more about the, the shooting? Of course. Yeah, um, absolutely. Like that's, it's so far, the part of why I love this, love this podcast is that, um, I feel like it's, it's a place where I feel like, you know, sure the listeners can learn things, but yeah. I can also learn things. It's, I'm right. very interested and it is so far removed from anything. Like I watch stuff on TV all the time, about yeah. like guns and shooting and yeah. violence and stuff, but the idea of uh, of actually being involved in something like that is so far removed from my, my life in, in so many ways. Like, I, I, it's hard for me to even grasp uh, what it what it's like. Yeah, it's, uh, again, it's something I hope you never have to experience because right. uh, I, as a police officer, you would say, oh, well, you signed up for that. Mm-hmm. I promise you, there hadn't been a shooting in my police department in 25 years when my shooting occurred. So I didn't anticipate yeah. that happening. I know people hear a lot about police-involved shootings, but they're not as frequent as you think when you consider how many police officers are out there. Yeah. There's millions of cops. Especially you watch TV shows about that's, cops and it kind of skews your perspective. Exactly. Right that's all you're seeing is, the, is those really high-intense, you know, adrenaline-pumping moments. For, but for me, um, my shooting, I was only 23 years old at the time when it wow. happened. And, I, you know, that's why I think about a lot of our veterans, because I don't care who you are, you're not wired to handle that. Yeah. If you're a normal, sane person, mm-hmm. you're not wired to handle that. But um, we can, if you want me to dive into it, we can. Sure. Okay. Um, so this was Easter Sunday. Um, and there's a lot to unpack here, so I'll try to keep it within, within our time frame. But um, I was actually training a new officer at the time. I had three years on the job. And I was training a new, new officer who had just started that week. So basically, they'd ride around with you. And we were inside the station because it was a slow night. It was Easter Sunday. And there was a call for a 911 hang-up. Basically, what that is is somebody called 911 and then hung up before saying anything. That happens every day in law enforcement, probably six or seven times during a shift. But even if it's just a hang-up, if they call back and nobody answers, you have to go there. That's our responsibility because it could be just that that person couldn't say anything. Right. So uh, there's a 911 hang up. It's uh, it's Easter Sunday. It's nighttime. And another officer gets dispatched to that call. But I decide to go because my recruit has had no experience for that night. We're basically just sitting there with, our, you know, we were driving around for a little bit. We just had our lunch break and we haven't done anything. So I was right around the corner from, you know, where we were. And I said, let's go. I actually was the first one to get there with my recruit. And shortly after that, the guy who was dispatched showed up, a Hispanic speaking officer, that, that, that's important for this story. Um, and so we all went in together. So it was, um, it was myself, two uh, regular offices, they were both Hispanic speaking, Spanish speaking, and, um, and my recruit. And we go into the house, and to be frankly honest with you, we were kind of shooting the shit before we went in, like, this was, we were complacent. To be honest, we really weren't expecting anything. And we went into the house and to kind of give your listeners a visual where I'm from, it's a very urban community and it's a lot of triple deckers. We call them They're three family homes. So it's all residential houses, but there's three apartments and they're stacked on top of each other. Right. And so you go into the first floor. We don't see anybody. We go up to the second floor. 
and this woman is speaking in Spanish. I have no clue what she's saying. I knew, I know a little Spanish, but not enough conversationally, but the officers were speaking to her. They relayed to us that there's some type of altercation going on on the third floor, but we don't know what. Um, somehow or another, I, I'm the first one to start going up to the third floor, and I, as soon as I turn the corner, it's this very narrow stairway, and there's a gentleman standing at the top of the stairs just looking at us. And he's kind of got this blank stare, and I'm like, hey, what's up? You okay? And he's not answering me. So we get up to the top of the stairs and there's like a little landing. And again, it's tough in a podcast, but I'm, I, if, if he's looking down at the stairs at us, to his left is the apartment door, which is closed. And to his right is this little area where there's a window where you can see outside. So this is the little hallway before entering the third floor apartment. So I walk past him and I walk to his right. So now my back is in front of the window and I'm staring directly at his right shoulder and then past him is the apartment door. The other officer comes up, he's speaking to him, they're talking in Spanish. And as they're talking, uh, the, the gentleman grabs for the doorknob and kind of opens the door and it swings open. And when it swings open, the apartment is in complete darkness. It's like a corridor and I can see down the hallway that there's a, a living room with the lights off. And then there's one room to the left of the living room that has a light on in it. I can't see in the room, I can just see the doorway and that it's illuminated but I can't see inside of it. So I'm just kind of staring in the apartment because I don't know why this guy just opened the door. And as I'm standing there, and I thank God every day for this, but I see like this silhouette, the shadow come out of that room that was illuminated. And thank God for that light because all, he was backlit. You would know mm. these terms better than me, but he was completely blacked out. Yeah, I could only see his outline, but because of the light behind him, I, I, I could tell that he has... It's the weirdest thing. I can't even describe it, but I could tell that he was looking at me as he was peeking out. Right. And as he stepped out a little bit more, I just happened to look down in his area where his hands would be, and I could see the outline of a knife because he had it down by his side. Mm -hmm. And thank God I did because I, I was looking at this guy like, what is he doing? And as soon as I saw the knife, they train you in the academy to say, just yell knife. And you think it sounds stupid at the time, but that was the first thing I yelled. And I pulled out my gun. And as I pulled out my gun, he had already started running at me before I even went for it. And so I pushed the guy that was in between us down the stairs towards the officers. They still don't know what's going on. I tried to back up. And as I backed up, I could feel like something cold on my back. And I realized it was the third floor window. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, this is, I'm going to go, I'm going to go out the window if he comes any closer. He runs all the way to the doorway. He's got the knife above his head. I can tell in his eyes that something's going on. There's a narcotic or something involved. He's not, he's not speaking to us. He's looking at us. He's kind of like lunging forward, but he's not making that actual like move towards me. So although I'm pointing my gun at him, I don't, I don't shoot him. I was only like three or four feet away from him. So I was well within legal parameters to do so. But I just, I felt like he wasn't going to go that extra step. He was just trying to scare me. So we didn't do anything. He backs up. He shuts the apartment door. We have to go in at this point. And this is a dispute that a lot of people, why do you got to go in? Well, at this point, we don't know if somebody else is in there. Right. One, he could be hurting himself. Two, he could have a victim in the room that he's going to kill if we somebody don't go called, in. Somebody called, right? Somebody called. We don't know at that point. Yeah. So we have to go in. As much as I don't want to go in because I know it's waiting for me behind that door, right. I have to go in. And so I, I kicked the door in. We knocked a couple times, banged it. We're not waiting long. This is a sense, this is exigent circumstances at this point. I kicked the door off the hinges and we come into a little kitchen area and it's complete darkness and he's standing right there in the back of the room. Mm -hmm. And he's got this like, you know, fighting stance. He's got the knife above his head and we're, we're surrounding him. 
And the reason I mentioned the Spanish speaking offices early is the whole time this is occurring, they're speaking to him. I'm yelling, drop the knife, drop the knife. But they're also speaking to him in Spanish, drop the knife, trying to, you know, telling him to, to relax and we're not there to hurt him. And I could tell at that point, even though I only had three years on, I had been on a lot of calls that this wasn't going to end well. There, he wasn't, I could tell he wasn't contemplating dropping the knife. Mm-hmm. He was more so looking for a way out. Like he was looking past us, which I knew I was like, this isn't going to be good. And as we continued to talk to him, he found a way because we were surrounding him, but we were also giving him his space. We didn't want him to feel trapped. And so that gave him an opportunity to kind of sneak by us and run down to that little living room that I had told you about when we when I first walked in. That was all the way at the end. Mm-hmm. So he runs down that little hallway into that room and it kind of curves around a corner so we can't see him. And again, I don't know if it was just who I was or whatever, but I felt like I had to go first. I knew I was the young guy. The other two cops I was, you know, three cops with all had children. And I don't know. We knew it wasn't going to end well. Mm-hmm. And I and I, it's weird to say this now. My wife always hates hearing the story, but I felt like if he was going to get someone, I wanted it to be me because I had less to lose. Yeah. You know, they had they had other people that needed them to come home. I'm not saying I was thinking this at the time, but subconsciously, I think that's kind of like, hey, listen, if he makes the move and he gets me, you're going to get him. You know, if he stabs me and takes me out, you're going to get him. And that's like the kind of thinking that, like, I imagine, you know, nobody would ever think that they would be thinking about those kinds of things in those terms. But as somebody who is in these situations, it's it's just part of life to be thinking that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and I can't even tell you, like, I'm not, I don't know why I was thinking that. Mm-hmm. And I don't know exactly if that's my exact, what I was thinking, you know, he's going to kill. But I was just like, let me go first. Yeah. I'll be the guinea pig. Because at this point, I didn't know if he was like standing right around the corner and just going to stab the first person who came in. We didn't know if he was in the back of the room or standing right by the, the doorway. So I go into the room first. I'm standing in the doorway. I couldn't even enter because the room was so small. Again, he was in the back corner. There was like a window there. And I could tell he was trying to open the window to escape. It was like a fire escape. But he was on some, uh, I think it was alcohol and drugs. And he was trying to open the window and didn't realize there was a piece of wood in the window. And so very quickly, he turns around, sees me standing there, realizes the window's not going to open. We believe he was trying to go down the fire escape to get to the victim, which we'll get into a little bit in a couple of minutes. But he turns around looks at me for a second, puts the knife above his head and just runs directly at me. And he was not running to scare me. He was running to stab me. There's no doubt about it. I remember, um, you could shoot someone within 21 feet legally. Cause that, that from that distance, they determined that someone, even if they're shot, they can still get to you. They can close that distance really fast. Right. right? Even after being shot. Yeah. And so I froze up a little bit cause I didn't want to shoot at anyone. And he was probably about four to six feet away from me when I fired my first shot. I ended up shooting him four times. Um, but the, the, the reason I mentioned that is because the gentleman behind me who was a Marine thought I was going to freeze, which does happen to cops, you know. And so he actually put his gun above my right ear and fired two shots because he figured, you know, yeah. I'm going to try to save Derek. Yeah. But we fired simultaneously. And so I hit him four times in the chest. And the reason I mentioned the other gentleman is one, I still have hearing issues in that ear because of it. Oh, but more importantly, um, you know, obviously every shooting comes into question later. Um, I'm not going to get into the specifics of what happened at that point, but I'll just say that um, he passed away instantly. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason why it was important for the gentleman behind me to shoot was because when they're recreating the scene, 
Um, they obviously had the four shots to the chest, which were mine, but they also had two shots to the arm, right where their right hand was. And what they determined was, based on ballistics trajectory, when, when Max, the guy behind me, shot, the gentleman's arm was above his head. Right. So my, 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 my story, as far as when he ran at me, his arm was literally above his head coming down on my forehead, mm -hmm. was proven by the, the bullets going in the arm one way and coming out the backside to prove that his arm was not down by his side. Mm -hmm. It was actually above his head when he was shot by us. So it confirmed our story. And more importantly, the people who had called were re related to him and they confirmed our story. Right. And uh, as far as the actual incident, um, this gentleman was dating a girl. Um, he found out that the girl was uh, also talking to his friend. Again, common story. Um, he grabbed a knife. He stabbed um, the guy in the foot. He was trying to kick him away. They were able to escape down to the second floor to call the police. That was the 911 hang-up. There was actually um, stab marks in the door that they were hiding behind because he was stabbing the door to try to get in. And we believe now, we'll never be able to prove this, but he was trying to get back down to the second floor to get to her because he figured I'm not gonna make I'm not gonna survive this, right. but I'm taking her with me. Mm -hmm. um, so crazy story, definitely changed my life, no doubt about it. Changed my whole perspective on why we're here and what we should be doing while we're here. And believe it or not, segue, it was a major reason why I made the decision to eventually apply for Big Brother. Yeah. Because it was one of those things where as unorthodox as it was for a police officer who was still active to apply for a reality TV show like Big Brother where you could really hurt your career. Right. Um, I knew I wanted to do it. It was a bucket list. And, and I lived my life after that shooting knowing that life can be taken from you in a second. I watched that man die in front of me because of me. Yeah. And, and it, I don't care how strong you think you are, within a second, your life leaves your body. And that's it, lights out, it's game over. And that could happen for me the minute you leave. And it could be just something, a medical condition that I'm not aware of. And so I, I really try to live my life day by day and approach it as if, if this were your last day, again, would you look back at it and say, you, you, you lived it the way you wanted to live it and you went after the things you wanted to go after in life. And so as tragic as that incident was and as traumatic as it was, in a weird way, I'm glad it happened mm -hmm. because it, it definitely changed me as a person. There's no doubt about it. And, it, and it, it'll be something that'll always influence the choices I make for the rest of my life. I can imagine, especially at 23, like, yeah. uh, did you, did you deal with, uh, with like post-traumatic stress afterward? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I wrote about it. I wrote about it in my book, which was a big stress reliever for me. But after it happened, I wasn't a religious person. But after it happened, you go through this, this, this scrutiny, right? And it's even worse now, but um, as you should, the, you know, everyone second guesses the shooting. Mm -hmm. Again, this was a person who was someone, a minority. Um, I was a white officer. It wasn't as prevalent in 2003, but it was, I'm, so, I'm sorry, 2007, but it was still, it's still around, it's still question it. And there is this process of a grand jury that happens in every shooting, whether okay. you're guilty or not guilty, or did something wrong or not something wrong. Every police involved shooting is, uh, reviewed by a grand jury and they make a decision whether or not you should be indicted. So during that process, you're on administrative leave. You're waiting for the state police and everyone to collect all the evidence and speak to all the witnesses before it goes to trial. And yet in the, in the media, they don't have to wait. Yeah. There's no information out there, but they just, uh, and this is my love hate relationship with the media. There's just conjecture and speculation based on the people they spoke to that were three houses down who didn't see anything. Mm -hmm. And so I heard everything from, 
he was cutting carrots for his soup and I shot him to, um, you know, this was a hit by the police department. And it's very frustrating not to be able to respond. Mm -hmm. And I, I found myself while I was out of work, um, drinking a lot and I, I'm, I'm not a drinker. I wasn't a drinker before I was, I'm not a drinker now. Um, doing stupid things like riding my motorcycle. I had a, you know, like one of those sport bikes, you know, riding my sport bike at a, you know, speeds of well above the limits in the rain, you know, doing wheelies, things just like having a disregard for, uh, my life. And they actually speaking to a therapist during the shooting and, you know, after the shooting, what, again, it's required at first, I didn't want to go to this therapist, but I'm, I'm really glad I did afterwards, but they, they basically classified as a Superman complex. You don't think you can be hurt. Yeah. And so I went through some times and I remember, and I wrote, again, I wrote about this cause it was something, it was the turning point for me where I was down in my basement. I had this ringing in my ear that always became, for some reason, it, it got stronger at night when I was alone and people weren't talking to me. Mm -hmm. And I remember being in my room, hearing this ringing, smelling like alcohol and just crying and, and kind of like contemplating life. I don't want to say I got to the point of like contemplating suicide, but like, I just, I, I felt like because I killed this person, I was automatically going to hell. Mm -hmm. There was no recovery for me. Like God was black and white and he was going to look at it. And I remember speaking to a priest about it and really contemplating my own purpose. And I remember sitting there drunk, crying and saying, is this going to be what defines you? This is the moment. Like people are going to remember you like, oh, you remember that shooting in 2007? That kid had like a lot going for him and it just broke him. And look at him now. He's like not with us any longer or he's in a mental institution. institution. Or this is going to be a moment where you're going to take it and people are going to go, wow, I can't believe he experienced that and look how well he's doing. And that, that really was the moment for me. I remember the next morning, the next morning, I was like, one small step, go back to the gym. Mm -hmm. You haven't been to the gym since the shooting. You used to do it all the time. Go back. Just one little thing. Go back to the gym. Then it was go meet up with friends for like a bite to eat because I was always turning all that down. Everyone wanted to hang out with me and I felt like they were just doing it to coddle me. Mm -hmm. Go out for that bite to eat. Watch a show with your family, you know, little things step by step. And as I did it, it got easier and easier. And then it got really easy after the grand jury hearing because within, this could take weeks. They came to a conclusion within eight hours after hearing the evidence. They were like, oh, this is a no brainer. Right. This, this, is, a, a slam, this is a slam dunk in the world. Like 100% you guys did the right thing. And then all the truth came out and it's like, oh my God, these guys are heroes. Yeah. And so that I wanted to get on the media and say, you know, get on the news and say, told you guys, <laughs> yeah. but it, that was a big healing moment for me. And yeah. I continued to go to therapy afterwards. They, they provide it for you. Um, and that was a big help. I read a lot of books about police involved shootings. So it was a process. And if I, I'd be lying to you, if I sat here and told you like I've went hundred percent recovered from it, cause I still have moments of post-traumatic stress. I still have that ringing in my ear sometimes that reminds me of it. I don't think that's something you ever forget. Um, but I try to use it as a motivation as opposed to a crutch. Yeah. And, um, it has its moments where it sneaks up on you. I definitely have some bad nightmares for sure. Um, but again, I always try to use it as something that I can harness to, to push me to do more, which isn't always the case, but nobody's perfect. No. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, it's probably the only thing you can do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this so, is deep for a big brother. Is this like the Terrence show usually does? Is this what you guys do? This is the Terrence show, yeah. Wow. This is great. Right? I'm not just saying it. This is great. Like, like this is therapeutic. This is great. Uh, I've, I've, I, well, like I said, I, I, 
when I when I told you that I wanted to uh, help kids, it was I wanted to be a, a psychologist. I wanted to be a child psychologist. I feel like I, I should be laying down right now on yeah. the couch. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, you got me over here almost crying, guys. <laughs> what the? Fuck? All right. Um, so I we're coming here to talk about the power of veto. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> All right. Well, so so this this brought you to Big Brother, but uh, you know, uh, there's also the undercover stuff. Yeah. Um, that uh, you know was talked about a lot when you were on the show. Yeah. About, like how that helped. But uh, I mean, even just listening to this story, um, and all that you went through, like personally, and had to overcome, like even just just that alone tells me like that's a lot more than I think a lot of the people who get cast on reality TV have gone through in life. Um, I think that by itself probably gives you a, a bit of an edge. Um, but uh, but, there, but there's also this undercover aspect. So uh, can you tell me more about like what the yeah. undercover work was? Yeah, to your point, first and foremost, you're right. When you're in Big Brother, when I've been through what I had been through, and what was at stake in those moments, like the shooting, when you're in the Big Brother house, it's literally a, a joke. Yeah. This is not life or death. Mm -hmm. If I win or lose, I'm gonna go home to my family and I'm gonna be alive. So yes, you're right. Um, undercover work. Very simple. I was a patrolman and I was actually only 21 at the time. It was my 21st birthday. I get a call from that same chief um, that was the one who told me to apply. I, I'm not gonna lie, it was my 21st birthday. So I woke up in a hotel room uh, with my buddies and, and my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife. And uh, I was feeling a little under the weather as most 21 year olds on their birthday feel. And the next morning, having my first couple legal drinks, and he said, hey, I know it's your 21st birthday, but I need you to come to the station. Uh, I go to the station and he goes, listen, there's a university uh, nearby that has an issue with some drugs uh, going on right now. And there might be some date rape drugs involved as well. And they just arrested someone who's within that group of people they think is distributing the narcotics through the university. And they're looking for someone young looking to come in and uh, go undercover and work it from the inside. And Derek, hate to tell you this, but you don't look like you should be a cop. So, and I looked very, very young. Like I, I still think I look pretty young for my age, I hope. Yeah. But back then, I mean, literally, I got made fun of it for every day at work. The guys would always be like, this kid is, should not be a cop. Yeah. So I go to the, the police department in charge of the case. They give me the backstory on it. They introduced me to the guy that they just arrested who had some of the drugs on him. They pinched him and basically converted him. He was gonna be my introduction. Um, along with another officer, a female officer who's going to play my girlfriend. And I just went into the university and I had this backstory. I was introduced to the main group of people who were allegedly selling the drugs to the other students. Um, I knew who the targets were. I found them out. I, I slowly worked them all night. We thought this could be like a, a week or two operation. Um, but sometimes you just find that you're naturally good at things. Like you, you don't even know what those things are yet. Right. And like I just found this innate ability to be able to get in with them, you know, find commonalities with them, do it in a way that didn't seem contrived or forced. And I don't know if it's luck or whatever it was, but that night I was able to basically gain the trust of the main person distributing the narcotics. And he actually said, hey, let's go back to my room, play some Madden. And I'm like, okay, great. I knew he was the main guy. They had established that he was the main guy. So I said, okay, good. We're, we're on the fast track here. Let's do it. So I go back to his room. Um, we're sitting there. He, he's drunk. Um, I, I, I've had a drink or two, which is legal, guys, if you're listening to that. And uh, we're playing Madden, and I remember there was a PlayStation and an Xbox sitting on his TV stand. 
and we were talking about the game, the narcotics game, and how he was kind of running the school, and he was bragging about how well he was doing, and he said, you know, they're on to me a little bit, but they'll never catch me. You want to know why? And I said, why? And he stood up, and he goes up to the Xbox, or uh, the PlayStation that was next to the Xbox, and he spins it around, and it was completely hollowed out, and all the drugs were inside the PlayStation. And so he's like, and that's why they'll never catch me. And I said, yeah, you know what? You're right. That's a pretty good hiding spot. <laughs> and uh, long story short, you know, you write up your report. They get a search warrant. They conducted the search warrant. They ended up arresting, I believe, 11 people that were all connected to it, lacrosse players at the school that was uh, pretty, pretty known for lacrosse. And uh, when it went to trial, I remember them seeing me and thinking that I got caught too. Yeah. And then learning very quickly that my name was actually Officer Derek Lavasser at yeah. the time, not even detective yet. And they all took plea deals. And they didn't go to jail for years for, again, in the grand scheme of narcotics, yeah. this was on the lower end. But it could have been worse because, you know, having daughters now, these are the type of guys that, you know, they get these girls in these compromising positions and it leads to other crimes, you know, sexual assaults, things like that. So I'm really glad we did it. And I knew at that moment that even though I was, I was just an officer at this time, that I wanted to be a narcotics undercover detective. Like yeah. I was like, this is it. This yeah. was, that was the best thing ever. I'm going to do everything I can now from this point forward as an officer to get the training I need to get that position down the road, mm -hmm. which I did. And I was, I was undercover for about three and a half, four years as a detective. And that was, I was 20, I was 24 at the time. This was after my shooting. I came back from the shooting People didn't think I would. They thought I would resign after that. Mm -hmm. I could have taken a pension and gotten 66% of my pension based on um, you know, disability, quote unquote disability. Um, I decided not to do that because I, I felt like I was still capable of working and it was an insult to those who couldn't after yeah. something like that. I came back, I was promoted to detective shortly after that and the rest is history. Yeah, well, yeah. what is the, the moment where they see you? Like, cause is is there do you do you feel like uh, do you feel bad at all for for having tricked them? I don't feel bad, but I definitely uh, I definitely I don't want to say I'm empathetic to them because I haven't been in their situation where I'm selling drugs. But it's right. like you definitely have some sympathy for them because here's the thing, you know, sometimes good people make bad decisions. Mm -hmm. Not all people that do bad things are bad people. And if I'm sitting here right now talking to you, I can't tell you definitively that those guys were bad people they probably went on to do great things with their lives mm -hmm. most of them honestly and so there is that that thing where you're like man that easily could have been me who just got caught up with the wrong people and now i'm you know my life is affected by because they got kicked out of school obviously um so there is that moment but at the end of the day you, we all have choices to make and i was close to the same age as them and i was able to make the right choices so you do feel bad for them, but at the same time, you have to say to yourself, if you hadn't done what you did, where would it have went? Because yeah. here's the thing, like we just said a little while ago, yeah, it was kind of, you know, they're selling weed and coke to kids and that's not good. But what you really have to think about is, again, what would have happened? What about that girl that could have been a victim of rape or something like that because you didn't act? Mm -hmm. So as much as I feel bad for them, I'm able to feel better about the situation because I know the people we saved from becoming victims. Yeah. And so, listen, it's a lesson learned. They clearly weren't gonna learn it on their own because they thought they weren't gonna get caught. And this yeah. isn't any other undercover operation I've done. And so you do get close with them, 
you do sometimes befriend them and actually develop a rapport with them. Right. But you got to realize, you know, if it wasn't for what you're doing, they'd still be doing what they're doing. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a weird situation. That's why they don't let detectives stay undercover for too long mm -hmm. because you do lose yourself. Cause you're constantly gaining the trust of people and then betraying them. I'm eating dinner with them. Yeah. We're eating dinner with them and talking about life. It's not always like, where's the drugs? Like mm -hmm. you're developing relationships with them that are based on genuine interests. Yeah. Like big brother. Like, you know, you really, when I'm sitting there talking to these drug dealers about baseball or football or, you know, life, a lot of those conversations are really me. You know, they're really who I am as a person and my views on those things. So you, it, it's very difficult not to become actual, to actually become friends with them. And I think that's what separates good undercover detectives from the bad ones. The ones that are just like trying to fake it till they make it right. or the ones that really buy into it. And I really, I really bought into it. And, and then when it was time to gather the intelligence needed for the search warrant, I was able to, you know, to do that as well simultaneously. But yeah, I, um, you definitely do develop relationships with them, but again, that's your job. You got to do your job. Yeah. So you did that. It was like similar style of, uh, you know, casework throughout the next, you know, three to four years. Yeah. It, I was in the special investigations unit. So we focused on drugs, guns, and gangs mm -hmm. and prostitution as well. And, 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 and we did operations where we would do reverse buys. We'd buy firearms. We'd do prostitution stings, John stings where guys were going out and soliciting, you know, prostitutes for money. Um, we did low scale operations where it might be just a drug dealer who's selling coke near a school or we, we did operations where it was involving kilos. I mean, we, at one point we seized, I think the biggest operation I was ever personally involved in was with the DEA because we worked a lot with federal agencies was over um, four or five kilos, which is 30, 40 grand a kilo. And then we seized two million in cash wow. that was in a suitcase right in the house that we found. So I had, I've gone up the spectrum. I've, I've gotten experience every level of narcotics, you know, work and um, they're all they're all adrenaline pumping, to be honest, because every time you do a search warrant, whether it's the one nickel and dime drug dealer or, you know, a drug lord who's overseeing the whole East Coast, they all can pull a trigger. So when you go through that door and not knowing what's on the other side, you know, it's an adrenaline moment and it's 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 a it's a gut check moment. Like, are you going to sink? Are you going to swim? Are you willing to step up to the plate and do your job or are you going to fold? You know, and and so. I was actually like very drawn to that, yeah. you know, and uh, again, a lot of this was before I had children mm -hmm. and then it all, that's a whole different chapter. Yeah. When you have children, it's a, it's a, cause now you're not, cause now you're, if something does happen to you, it's not just affecting you, it's affecting these kids and it definitely changed my whole decision making process, but sure. I loved it. I loved doing it. It was fun. Did you do like, um, like much longer scale? Like uh, developing relationships yes. over yes, absolutely. When, when you're doing that, do you like are you in it all the time? Do you feel like it's like that's just a part of your like ongoing personal life now? Is like you're like are you playing? Are you trying? Like how how do you decompress from that role if it's a long term thing uh, and just like live your own life that's separate from the, you know the the person you're portraying yourself to be? It's it's a weird thing. I I was never in the position where. And, and there are undercover detectives who do this, but I was never in the position where like I was like living and right. sleeping with the with the enemy, you know, mm -hmm. with the guy. But I would be in positions where I would meet up with these people, go out with them, hang out, you know, meet up to do deals, but also meet up to hang out and go to the movies. And but then I would leave there and go home. Yeah, I would go home to my girlfriend or wife, and you know, it's the same person by the way, but different points <laughs> yeah. of my career. Um, but 
I would go home to them and kind of decompress and I'd go in the morning to the police station and write my reports and do what I had to do and then take off for the day, you know, and I'd sneak into the station through the, the basement garage with like a undercover car. It was, you know, but I got to decompress by being around other police officers, being around my family and friends. And on the weekends or when I was off work, I always had to carry my undercover IDs and stuff because if I ever ran into someone who I was working against at that moment or had worked against in the past, right. my wife knew that if we were at the movies or at the mall and someone approached me and was like, yo, D, and it wasn't someone they she recognized, if she could, to continue walking as if she wasn't actually even with me yeah. or if she was to just not say anything, mm -hmm. to say as little as possible and let me do the talking and kind of feed off what I was saying because depending on that case, you know, this person might think I'm a different person. Yeah. Than, than she knows me to be. And if it was a case of like retaliation where I put someone in jail, then, you know, I hate to say it, but she, I always carried a gun on me. She knew that if, if this person came up to me in a confrontational way to just move away as quickly as possible and, and go get some help, yeah. you know, and let me do my thing and leave me by myself. So we had a plan worked out. Um, but most of the time I had the opportunity to decompress, do my own thing. I was never in a situation where I was like sleeping with the enemy, so yeah. to speak. The only time that ever happened was on Big Brother. Yeah. <laughs> it, that was an undercover op for me, you know? Yeah. So, and I'm sure we'll get into that, but yeah, that was, that was the deepest undercover I ever went. Did you, did you find yourself almost not wanting to go out as often just for fear of running into people? It's almost like you know what to ask, Taryn, because literally that was the reason I found Big Brother. Yeah. I didn't go out a lot. Mm -hmm. And so I would sit at home and I'd watch, we'd do a lot of Netflix, a lot of movies, a lot of, you know, eating in Chinese. That I was kind of a recluse in that way. We didn't go out often. And I remember sitting on my couch one night flipping through the channels and I just happened to stumble on this channel on Showtime and it looked like closed circuit television. Yeah. And I remember it was, I learned later that it was, um, Oh my God, I'm drawing a blank right now. It was Reagan. Yeah. And he was talking shit about Rachel. Yeah. But it, and he was in bed talking to himself. And I was like, what, it, what did I just, did I like just intersect a, yeah. like a feed? <laughs> like, what is this? Are these people trapped somewhere? Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the Showtime episode, it said, you know, tune in to watch Big Brother. And I was like, what the fuck? So I started, Google, you know, checking it out. And I'm like, I gotta watch this show. It's kind of cool. And as I watched it, I just fell more and more in love with it. And I would watch it with Jana. And uh, I remember saying to her at times, because I was still undercover at this moment, if I ever went on the show, I think I'd kill it. I think mm -hmm. I'd do pretty good because this is what I do every day. And she'd always go, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> Everybody who goes on the show thinks they'll kill it. Yeah. You know, but that, that's how it all started was because of undercover work and not being able to kind of go out and socialize with people in a public place. Yeah, it's, it's funny because I feel like uh, a lot of people I talk to that are into the show, they... Like, there was something about the show that attracted them, certainly, like, the, it's usually the game aspect. The it wasn't the Instagram Insta followers? Well, the people I talk to. <laughs> I talk to. That's a whole different story. <laughs> um, but I, it's, it's almost as though, and I feel like then getting into the show, people often get, and that's how I, like, I found the show, I was drawn to something in it, and then because of the show, I got more interested in the sort of social gameplay mm -hmm. aspect of it. Um, but... In, in a lot of ways, you approached it from the reverse direction. You were attracted to the show because of that stuff, because that's what you had been doing before. And it's yeah. like, hey, look, it's people doing like a little version of, of my work. Exactly. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And then going on the show, have, watching previous seasons, it just gave me an even deeper understanding because I knew how to implement my undercover approach based on the way the show, the game was played. Yeah. So I didn't just like 
apply and say, I'm going to just be an undercover cop in there. I had been watching since, what season was Rachel and Reagan? That was season 12. 12. But I went back and ended up watching from season 10. Yeah. So I had watched 10 through 15 before going in there. Yep. And so I had a pretty good understanding of the game, and I got to watch one of our favorites, Dan Giesling, mm-hmm. who really laid out a, a roadmap for how to play the game at that time. Yeah. The game's definitely changed since then. But um, I had got, I had to watch, to watch the Brigade. brigade. Mm-hmm. I got to watch Dan. I got to watch who were some of the other greats. Even people like you know Jeff Schroeder, who didn't make it far, but he was very well liked on both the seasons early on, and then his... His his end game play. I mean, he'll be the first to say this yeah. wasn't there. He didn't have that finesse. But again, he he was very well liked on both the seasons. You know, America liked the way he played yep. as well. So I took a little bit from a lot of different people, and um, it definitely helped me to apply my undercover approach, but in a way that was suitable for the game of Big Brother. Yeah. So you applied. Did you get on the first time you tr- your first time? So I I told my wife again going back everything we've talked about today. The shooting, the experiences I had, you know, realizing, you know, you're not promised tomorrow. I remember I got out of undercover work. I was promoted to sergeant and I was watching the show like every season. And at the end of the season, here comes Julie. If you'd like to be on the next Big Brother, go to this website, apply now. And I knew they had open casting calls and stuff like that. I wasn't going to do any of that. I was not about that. I wasn't that desperate to be on the show. Nothing against people who will go... Yeah. But I wasn't going to put myself in that position. It would it'd be too embarrassing for me. Yeah. So I just did a video, and I, I was very pragmatic about it. I just said, listen, I sat on my stairs right in this house that we're sitting in now, and I said, hey, my name's Derek. Oh, you know, I gave my backstory, and I said, I'm going to go in there and use people's strengths and weaknesses against them once I learn what they are, and I'm going to approach the game like an undercover detective. Um, if you guys are interested, I'm only applying this one time. It's my bucket list, so I hope to hear from you. And shortly after that, I was sitting on my couch in the living room, 10 feet from us, and that phone behind us uh, had a voicemail on it. We never answered that phone. My wife came in. I was still sitting on the couch. She checked the voicemail and said, hey, did you go listen to the voicemail? And I said, no. Why would I listen to that? I won't check that phone. And she goes, you might want to go listen to it. And it was uh, Danny from Big Brother. And he wanted to, uh, I could actually have the voicemail still on my phone. Oh, wow. And, uh, and uh, he said, this is Danny from Big Brother. We'd like to talk to you about coming on you know, the show. So give me a call when you get this. And it all kind of went from there. Wow. Uh, so you get onto the show. You pretty quickly, I think, you know, you, you find success pretty quickly. I mean, I, I remember watching the first week and being like, this Frankie guy seems really impressive. Mm, Derek also, though, seems like he has a lot of promise. Uh, and then by week two, um, Frankie was trying to make a move against Zach and he would be in, in a room with a few people and he would be, he'd like convince them to vote Zach out. Zach needs to go. And then you would go into the room after Frankie and without even like making it seem like that's what you wanted, you had them completely, you know, yeah, reverse. It's a tough week though. Um, tough yeah, week. you were, you were already doing a lot of work, but it was different than how some other people might do work in the sense that nobody saw you as like leading a charge. Whereas like Frankie was leading a charge against Zach you were just like planting ideas in people's heads and not really making a big show yeah. of it. And so pretty immediately I recognized like this, this guy is dangerous in this game. <laughs> uh, I have to imagine that that maybe it was around then, maybe it was even earlier that you recognized like, okay, like this is, this is working. Like this is, yeah. uh, this is going well. I, I knew from watching previous seasons that one of the biggest downfalls to people's games was that they were kind of leading the pack 
mm-hmm. and they would they would they'd start off behind the scenes and then they'd start to take that leadership role and then if something didn't work out they were the scapegoat yeah and then they would be confronted by the other side or whatever and then it was just a matter of time before they went home so i always wanted to create a couple layers between me and the source of information so that if it did come back on us if it didn't work out I could I could kind of pawn it off on other people because as much as you would think that I thought I was in control, I was very paranoid as you should be in yeah. that game, and I was always like, "This is probably not going to work out." So if it doesn't, what's Plan B, C, D, and E? Mm-hmm. You know, who can I spin this on? And it, and that did happen a couple times. I remember uh, when Zach blew up our game and told Victoria yeah. about my I I that as much as that sound like felt on the show, like it was kind of like a spur of the moment thing for me to spin it the way I did on Nicole and put it back on them. I had, I had kind of planned for any situation where if this does happen, this is how I'm going to react. And when that happened, I remember spinning it back on Zach and it worked out well for me. But um, yeah, I always wanted to create those layers so that I was never the forefront of anything. And to do that, I would kind of put little pieces in individuals heads that I know knew would speak to each other at some point and yeah. they would take the two different pieces I gave them and connect the dots themselves. Mm-hmm. And then they would go to who I wanted it to go to and it would work out. And I know it sounds like, oh, I had it all figured out, but I didn't. And there were definitely some missteps in there. But um, for the most part, I learned who people were and who they were close with. And I knew that if I gave them a certain piece of information, that would get to the people I needed it to get to. Yeah. And you, I mean, you have, you know, what has to be the most successful experience on the show as, as I think anybody could even have between, you know, dominating the game. You also were part of team America. You may, I think you, I think you hold the record for most amount of money. And everyone asks me what I'm most proud of. That's the, that's yeah. what I'm most proud of. It, I, I believe Taryn, you would, you should know this one over me, but I believe whether you played one season, two season, three seasons, I hold the the highest number for most earnings in a, in a game in the game of Big Brother. I think so because five hundred seventy five thousand. The second place is Dan yeah. with five seventy. Yes, because he had uh, America's Player in, in season ten. Then he won, and then he came in second. So when they ask me about the records, which one you care about? <laughs> as of right now, nobody surpassed me yet, and maybe somebody will. Eventually. I mean, playing multiple seasons, you'd think somebody would eventually. But yeah, I mean, uh, if I go back and play again, just by going yeah. in the house, I'm gonna I'm already I'm gonna increase my lead. Yeah. So, no, that's that's definitely a number I'm proud of. And I'm definitely proud of my season. We could sit here and you have a very passionate audience and I'm biased for sure. But, I, you know, and I've talked about this with Dan. I've talked about this with Will and they'll agree to disagree. But I, I uh, you can make a very good argument that uh, that Dan and Will are above me and maybe some others as well mm-hmm. because they're total body of work. Yeah. Right. I mean, they've done it twice. Yeah, I have it. And they were very successful in their second seasons. I didn't see season six, but I did, I say, I've seen a lot of clips. And Will, again, with that big target on his back, with no real safety, got to, what, fourth place? Yeah, fourth place. And, he, and one move with Janelle, you know, differently, and he might have won the game again. Yeah, and I, you know, I, have, I have a lot of criticism for his handle, uh, you know, how he handled fourth, that fourth place finish. Um, you know, I feel, like, uh, I, feel like, I feel like that blunder was easily avoided, 100, personally. 100%. Uh, but, he got a little cocky. Yeah, exactly. And, and the same thing goes for Dan in season 14. Mm-hmm. You personally love Ian. I think Dan played a better game. Yeah. I think Dan should have won. And, and, and Dan would be the only two-time winner right now. And so I think total body of work, I would not argue with the idea that they're above me. Yep. Because total body of work, they've done more than me. 
But I, I would argue with the best of them that if you were to compare season to season, yeah. based on I didn't have any safety, I think I've played the best single season game in the history of Big Brother. And then you'll say, oh, you know, Dan has the 7 to 0 vote. And Dan will never say this. He'll never come out and say this publicly because that's Dan. I'm different. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he'll say he played the perfect game because he's the only one to have that, you know, unanimous vote. You know, I got voted against for personal reasons, and that's fine. And I've learned that since the show. Yeah. I don't care about the votes. I care about the season playing up to it. And I can tell you right now that I could have saved a baby in that house. And Jocasta and Donnie weren't going <laughs> to vote for me because it was decided based on nothing to do with game. Mm -hmm. and, and Jocasta and Donnie will tell you that. Yeah. I've had the conversation with Donnie. He came to a book signing of mine, and he told me right out. Yeah. He was not voting for me. It was he, well, yeah. It was one of those things. It was like a season long rivalry. That's it. And he felt. I mean, if you watch the season, I mean, when I when I exposed that I was an undercover cop, he didn't even clap. He just <laughs> he did not like me at that point. Uh -huh. And we're friends now. Yeah, we're good. And Jacosta apologized as well because she was fed misinformation about fake praying right. in the jury house. Yeah, she was mad about by that. Donnie. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it, it is what it is. But again, you can make the argument for other people. And then there's the big discussion we can have about level of opposition. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm super biased. But if you run down the players in my season individually, I don't think they're far off from any other season. Personally, that's that's an argument that I I don't love the the argument of like oh well they just you know he played against a, a weaker cast because my view on it is that when there is somebody that's really really good they make everyone else look really really bad uh, and so it's impossible to tell like how these people would have played if Derek hadn't been there to right. uh, to make them look bad and I do think it is definitely a point in your favor that Nicole goes back and wins the game. And she wasn't even viewed as one of the best players in our season. Exactly. <laughs> and Nicole's an amazing player, by yeah. the way. And again, I know she has her criticisms out there too, but I was thoroughly scared of Nicole in mm -hmm. my season. I knew from the very beginning that she was someone who was not to be messed with. And that's why we voted her out twice. Yeah. Because to me, she was way more threatening than Donnie. She was. She. It was her. Her and Hayden. I remember they were like the only people I remember ever having any real opposition to, other than Donnie, of course. Uh, you know, when you were both co-hohs, and that was that was when a lot of people were. Uh, I remember the, the the big thing at the time online was like King Derek, King Derek. He thinks he runs the house. But he can't convince, he can't trick Nicole. Nicole's on to him. She talked to Hayden about how, you know, oh, he's, he thinks he's in charge of things. They're on to him. Yeah. Uh, but then, uh, you know, you were able to slide back in there, especially with, uh, you know, Cody had a good connection to them. You were mm -hmm. able to use that uh, to get them back on Definitely board. Definitely helped. And then... Uh, and the then, rationale. Yeah, a few weeks later, they, they both trusted you yeah. and, and Cody. And, that's where and that's it derived from. you them in the back. Nicole was a great player. You know, we could run down the list. Again, this is my opinion, and if I leave anybody, I apologize. I think Nicole, incredible player. I think she proved that coming mm -hmm. back, you know, winning. I think Frankie yeah. is a great player. Very underrated. Uh, great player. I think he still holds the record. I mean, again, this is a skewed number because we had, you know, the so battle of the block. Yeah. That's a whole other argument, too. That's the big argument against yes. me, right? We could get into that. But um, Cody, I think, was a good player. He, he may have trusted me a little too much, but I was never going to burn him, so he didn't trust the wrong person, yeah. so to speak. Um, Donnie, everyone thought Donnie was a good player. Terrible social game. Didn't really have that going for him. But then as far as people want to talk about recruits in, in most recent seasons and not, Christine, not a recruit. Yep. Watched all the show. Jacosta, not a recruit. Watched the show. Frankie, he didn't really watch the show that much beforehand, but he knew the game. 
Cody had watched a few seasons. Zach was probably a recruit. Nicole knew the game. Hayden had known the game. I knew the game. There was a lot of people in there who had watched the show and were not looking for Instagram followers. Because yeah. that really wasn't even as big. That was like when your, the turning point yeah, season was. your season was. was one of the turning points. Frankie yeah. was probably... Social media mogul. Frankie was probably the turning point for the social media element of our of our show, right? Yeah, the, and the, so, the Zanky thing. The Zanky thing. Yeah. So there were some players in there. Um... And even the people who didn't know the show that well were some of America's favorites, like Brittany. Brittany was yeah, someone that a lot of I people remember, liked. Yeah. And she was, I had to get her out early because she was someone who couldn't be manipulated. I remember that because I mean, she was, she was sort of a, a loyal soldier for you, but you, like you, you saw that when she was getting information from people like Donnie and, uh, and Devin, uh, she started to question you. Yeah. And, she was uh, good. She was really she good. Had she go. had, had life experience, yep. you know? And so she knew, she knew what she was there for and she was fighting for the same thing as me, mm-hmm. which was our kids. So, um, I am definitely biased. So I'm not right for this conversation. I, I sometimes listen to other people talk about it. I don't listen to a lot of the criticism cause it's not going to change anything. Yeah. We could sit here and make 17 points as to why, that's not the case, and then someone will have 17 counterpoints. Yeah. The Battle of the Block is the other thing. You know, I didn't choose the Battle of the Block. Yeah. I didn't I didn't know going in there there's gonna be a battle of the block. And to be honest, when I heard there was a battle of the block initially, I said, I'm screwed because we're not just putting up two people, we have to put up four people mm-hmm. every week. So anybody who knows anything about the show knows that winning HOH is a terrible thing. Yep. Because you're making enemies automatically. Because someone is going to stay. And for me, I was like, now I really don't want to win HOH because I have to make three new enemies. Mm-hmm. One's going to go home, but three of them are going to still be here. And they're going to be able to come after me and I can't defend myself. Used to be just one other person you had to worry about. Now it's three. And so I figured out the twist. Yeah. And we found a way to use it to our advantage. But the argument I would make is all these outsiders in my season and every season since... It all comes down to one thing, win. If you win, you control how to how the how this how the twist works. Yeah. You gotta win. Donnie, America's favorite, never won an HOH. Yeah. Well, I mean that I mean that's I think that's it, it is it is more difficult for them because you know Donnie did win a co HOH. It's true. But then was not able to hold on to the title. Good, valid point. Um, yeah. Valid point. And so and that's something that we've been talking about recently where, you know, ever since season fifteen into season sixteen, they've been doing these big format twists for the mm. first half of the game, mm-hmm. uh, which do often reward sort of large alliances that's a fair coming argument. together and staying together. That's a fair um, argument. And I I personally don't uh like discredit your game a lot for this because it was one of the first ones, and you really were the person that cracked the formula. Yeah, uh, that's why and, they did away with it. Right, and figured <laughs> it out. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, and it's certainly not your, your fault that there's, like, they, if they present you with something that's, uh, that's solvable, and you solve it, then mm-hmm. what more can you do? Even in hindsight, I would have rather not had it. Yeah. I would have rather not had it, because I, I still think I would have, you know, fared yeah. the same way, but I wouldn't have had to worry about the people that we were putting up next to him and convincing mm-hmm. them that it was okay that they were going up. Certainly a, mo- a lot more to worry about. Yeah, yeah, because again, they could say, oh, it's fine, you're putting me up on the other side of that battle of the block. But, you know, I mean, we got down to freaking M&Ms. You, we ran out of excuses. Mm-hmm. Well, know? The, you know, so there's another another part of your strategy that I've been talking about recently with, with Cliff. Um, not to get too into the weeds about, like, uh, current seasons or anything, but... Um, you, you came onto the podcast, we talked about Cliff's yeah, move yeah. the other, uh, the other week, um, you know, 
making a deal, following through with it. Yeah. One of the moves that I've always really liked that you did was um, because normally people say don't win HOH. It's not good. You're you know you're showing that you're a competitor. Uh, it puts a target on your back. But I loved the way that you handled it in the early part of season 16, where you won HOH and you used it as an opportunity to get like credit with people. Like uh, you. You portrayed yourself to be very straightforward. You won HOH. You said, this is my goal. You did just that. You didn't mess around. There were no back doors. Everybody knew what was happening. It was very straightforward. And you were able to accomplish that by, you know, even convincing Devin that uh, this is the right move to, yeah. to, to, to go forward with. And because you were so solid and you stuck with your word, that helped propel you forward in the game right. because uh, people remembered you as somebody that was good to your word. And so now, uh, you know, I think that what Cliff has done in this season, um, making a deal, staying true to his word, is mm -hmm. now paying off for him. I would agree. In the uh, weeks later where people, well, he's, he's good to his word. If he says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. Exactly. And I feel like that's an underrated <clears throat> move in Big Brother to, uh, to have an opportunity to be good to your word and, and, and stay true, as long as you're willing to go back on your word eventually. Right. Um, that, you got to choose that moment wisely. Exactly. Because you only get one time. Exactly. It's one get out of jail free card. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I think that that's something that, uh, that not enough people do in the house to like build up their reputation in that way. They like to say, oh, I've never lied in this house. But they don't actually do anything to convince people of that other than say it out loud. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, you know, I, do, do, so you, do you, have you, have you been keeping up with this, with this cliff stuff? Yeah. And I mean, you know, I, I was critical of that decision a few weeks ago when he decided to kind of back off his HOH and, you know, settle and make those deals. But he saw what a lot of us saw, which was that the bigger alliance was not a real strong alliance. Yep. And he was just hoping, he couldn't control it, but he was just hoping it fractured before it was too late for him. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, it worked out. Yeah. Do I think the one negative to being that honest person um, could actually cost you the game, which is nobody wants to sit in the end with you? Yes. Yes. Because I think looking at it from an outside perspective, and people said this about Cody with me, Yeah. you know, I would vote for Cliff in the end. And, I, and it's no secret that everybody would vote for Cliff in the end. Yeah. And so it can hurt you in the end. So you have to have a little blood on your hands. Yeah. And I think he has that. But I don't think anyone is going to take Cliff to the end because of how – they're already saying in the house he's America's favorite. Oh, yeah. You know, they know. They know how he's being portrayed and they know he's a genuinely good person. So I don't think they would like to sit next to him in the final two. And that's what I was concerned about watching you. Yeah. I had just watched, and I know you had as well, Amanda <clears throat> and John. And all season long, we were like, well, John is taking that out of the final two. Correct. We know this. And then the feed's cut and the finale comes and whoa, yep. turns out didn't go that way. Um, and then we saw a very similar setup from, from you. Yep. And I was like, oh, Derek, I don't know about this. You know, the, um, thing that's, the thing that saved me with that, and it didn't make the show, which is unfortunate, but I, they couldn't have predicted this was going to be the decision-making thing. But me and Cody talked about it all the time. It was that deal between like the eight or nine of us, the, Hayden was the pack that if anybody took her, yeah. that they would vote against them. And I truly felt like they all would. Mm -hmm. Even if I had had an idea to cut Cody, I felt like I was going to look like an idiot because Julie was going to play on the screen the pact we made. Yeah. And then I was going to be like, I took her guys. And they're going to be like, do you remember when there was the eight of us in this room and we all made a pact and we shook on it? I felt like that was going to come back to bite us. And if it wasn't for that pact... 
maybe the game ends differently. Maybe maybe Cody doesn't take me. I don't know. I think he would have. Honestly, we were so close <laughs> with each other. We were like brothers. But that pact is what really saved me. And if John, what was the, Sabrina? Sabrina. Sabrina. If, if she was kind of like a Victoria of our. Uh, you know, she did a little bit more than Victoria. I'm not discrediting Sabrina. Yeah. But she was not like the strongest player. She was not Netta. Yeah. And I think if he had known that by taking Sabrina, it could come back. It, you know, it was going to cost him the game. Maybe he'd stay true to his. I don't know. Exactly. It was a very different, D- different uh, setup. You know, environment. The you know people in the jury were saying we would vote against you if you didn't take Sabrina. Like, that would be the dumbest thing in the world. Every uh, one of the jury members were in that, almost every one of the jury members were in that room. Yeah, yeah exactly. When, when that pact was made. Exactly. So and I was I was nervous. You know, it's, uh, that's, it is it is hard, especially when those things don't make the show, because, you know, then I, people like me try to bring it up later. And, yeah. Oh, that's, that was yeah. nothing. And, and the production at that moment, that wasn't a big moment in this yeah. season. It didn't really come into play. We talked about it a lot at the end. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were like, you know, they're they're going to be so bitter towards us. It's 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 the same. It's the same thing with season fourteen when they when they talk they made a pact to not vote for a coach. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. especially a, a previous winner, I should say. Yeah. So you you get out of the show. You've yeah. won. Um, you we talked a little bit about when you when you hopped on the podcast uh, a couple weeks ago, um, like the sort of the fan response and you know being on social media and and all of all of what that entails um i've talked to plenty of people who had really great experiences i mean netta herself uh you know she didn't win but she was a huge fan favorite coming out of season two and still had a really tough time uh handling just the overwhelming sort of response and and all of that stuff um you know Steve, who is uh, who is a, a winner of the show. Mm. Um, you know, and and you know maybe not like the most beloved, but certainly you know lots of people like like Steve, even if they think Vanessa right. should have won it. Right. Um, you know, Steve also like he was a huge fan of the show. Came off, won, had a great experience, and is uh, a little bit less invested in the show now, and yeah. had a had a sort of a, an experience that was like, oh man, like let's. Settle this down. Uh, did, did you have something like that? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I think uh, when you play the game, we talked about before we started recording today. Yeah. You have like this post-traumatic stress and you also, you, you pull back the curtain and you know the inner workings of Big Brother. Not that there's like this big, don't, I don't want your audience to take it the wrong way. They're like, oh, it's all planned out. But like you see the, you're seeing behind the curtain, you know, like, and it becomes not your favorite television show, but a point in your life. Mm-hmm. And so you're reminding of a lot of things, good and bad, when you played. And it takes a few years to get back to the place where you just love the show because of it. it's a television show. I'm, I, it's been five years now. I'm so far removed from it. And the game has evolved so much that like I don't, <clears throat> I don't see it as my house anymore, if yep. that makes sense, when I watch the show. And like... You know, I've seen comments where people are like, oh, I'm glad to see Derek's back and like talking about Big Brother again. It wasn't because I felt like I was better than Big Brother or anything like that. It's just like I hadn't been keeping up with it as much because it was it, it changed my passion for the show changed because it wasn't a show to me anymore. Yeah. It was a part of my life. And so now I'm back in that place where like I watch. I definitely don't miss the live episodes. I can't say that I always catch the other, you know, taped episodes right away. I'll use a DVR and watch them later that night. I click on the feeds once in a while. I hit in the chat rooms. Like I'm back to that place I was before I played, mm-hmm. which is great. And so I can see how some people have bad experiences. And I was in a p- position where a lot of the I got a lot of love afterwards. So it wasn't the 
response to me winning that drove me away. It was just my own investment into playing the game, and it took me years to decompress from that. Mm-hmm. And now I'm back to where I was. And I, I, I have a very good response from the Big Brother community overall. I, like, I'm extremely yeah. fortunate. You know, well, I'm happy about it. Let, let's, you know, the, this is... Uh, going to be on Rob as a podcast we should talk about uh, maybe one of the not great responses that you got um, who was a, a the former Big Brother correspondent yes, Rob we, we, yeah, yeah. We hit, we hit if, you, if you want to talk about let's this let's do it yeah, yeah it's whatever um, that's so, the one thing about me I don't play Big Brother outside the house right and and that can sometimes bite me. Like we were just talking a little. I know we're gonna get into Brian and this stuff, but like I'm sitting here like, hey, I think I played the best single season game. That is not condoned by a lot of big brothers. Yeah. They don't want that. Yeah, humility is a great thing, and I'm definitely humble. But like, I will tell you what I think. And you talked about in the show in the game when I would just like, this is what I'm gonna do, and this is how I'm gonna do it. That was who I am. Mm-hmm. So when, you know, when we talk, when you, oh, you want to talk, I'll talk about it. <laughs> I've been through enough where I'm not afraid to voice my opinion. Yeah. And some people view that as cockiness or whatever, but it's like, I'm just being honest. It doesn't mean I'm right. Yeah. But it's my opinion. And I'm not going to sit and go, well, it's just to be nice to be in the category with some of the, that's a very politically correct answer. That's yeah. just, that's just not me. Yeah. So, I, but, I appreciate it. That's what, that's what the show yeah, is all And about. I mean, either love it or hate it. I, the saying is, you know, I'd rather you hate me for who I am than love me for who I'm not. Yeah. And, I, you know, but if somebody comes at me with a counterpoint about something I say, I'm open to it. It's not like I'm sitting here just completely turned off to the idea. Like I said about the Dan and Will thing, mm-hmm. I, I see that argument. Yeah. I see it all day long. I wish it wasn't the case, but it's the truth. And so back to the, the Brian thing. I, I don't mind talking about anything, clearly. Well, the I, guy who hated me. Yes, yes. Uh, Brian, <laughs> the guy who hated me. You know, uh, one of shout one, out Brian. One Brian. of the reasons, you know, I I am on the podcast because of the uh, the response that he had to you. You're welcome, Terry. Um, and I remember listening to Rob's podcast and being very frustrated with the coverage yeah. at the time um, because you know it I was, couldn't do anything right. Yeah, it was just him, and I felt like he was not covering things accurately. He was and, only looking for things to show that I was a bad person. Exactly. You know, uh, the big thing was we talked about it beforehand. Yeah. I absolutely made the comment that I want to break Zach's jaw. I don't remember the exact context of it, and, and but I think it was about him making fun of Brittany when she was kicking soccer balls. Yeah. I, I could I, be yeah. completely wrong, but it was something where I was like, I just want to break Zach's jaw because I, as a person outside the game, if I had saw a guy doing that to someone, it, it would I would definitely have that response. For the record, I would never break anyone's jaw. It was it was it was just something I said in anger, and I never even said it to him. I never threatened anyone. But to your point, he took that and ran with it the whole season. Yeah, like it was like that that decide that depicted who I was as a person. Yeah, and and you know what we've been talking about is that like that that happens all the time, right? Even now, where uh, you know. It, he was a he was a Zach fan, and he was yes. not a you fan, not a me and, fan. And so, <laughs> uh, usually, what we'll see is that you know, if if something is said by somebody that people don't like, then they will take that quote and they will do their best to strip it of the context yeah. and and post it around. And if something is said uh, by somebody that they do like, then it's uh, well, hold on, let's find the context and let's understand that people just say things sometimes and then right. they're joking. Right. Um and and that's that's sort of the nature of of Big Brother, especially nowadays. It's gotten much, much worse in that regard. Oh uh, my in God. the fan base yeah. with you know it's it's very it's it's like uh, it's the people fight wars over this yeah. uh, back and forth about you know, who's, who's a good person, who's a bad person. People make up their mind very quickly, too. Yeah. 
And then they, and you know, before the podcast started, I had said to him how things change. And I said, I see people internally fighting with themselves over reasons to still not like Jackson. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They're like, I, I can't like him. Yeah. I hated him for so long. He's saying the right things now, and he's our only hope to kind of... And they're, like, internally struggling to, like, you know, put things online. And then the people who do, they get, you know, crushed for it. It's funny because it's 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 sort of... It's 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 almost forcing self-awareness on people. Yeah. Where it's like... <laughs> true, that's true. I'm watching the bias happen to myself where, like, I am now in the position where I want to defend what he's doing but right. that's the complete opposite of where I was before and right. that's because where I was before I was in the opposite position where I didn't like what he was right. doing in the people game. can change yeah. people can evolve and I'm not defending anybody but mm -hmm. um, to what we were talking about you know with, with certain people they're so emotionally invested in the players to an unhealthy degree that they can't see past their own hatred for someone and and I experienced that with Brian and I only experienced it because I was a huge fan of Rob Has a Podcast. Mm -hmm. So like anyone, I went back and listened to, you know, the shows, the, you know, the, the rewinds and whatever would happen. And it was tough for me to listen to because whenever someone would come on to compliment me, Brian would have 17 counterpoints yeah. as to why I'm a terrible person. So it was very tough for me. And, and at some point, it got a little bit worse than that where he started talking about my family a little yeah. bit and stuff. And, and again, by no means am I the toughest kid in the world, but I'm definitely not afraid of anyone mm -hmm. uh, as a as a man and i remember we had a couple exchanges on twitter and he backed off a little bit because i think we we talked privately on twitter and i and i, I don't remember exactly but i, I basically told him out right right how i felt and that uh it wasn't going to continue to happen that way i'm a, you're sitting in my house right now yeah you know i'm not just a television person and like we're human beings and mm -hmm. i had a, i had an issue with some of the things he said and i directly called him out on it and i think anybody should do that they need to be held accountable especially in the position you're in we've talked about this already you may look at it as you're just tearing you know doing what you love yeah but a lot of people are invested with your opinions yeah you've become a voice and a figure in the big brother community to the point where people really entrust you to give them the news and give them the updates in an impartial objective manner and yeah. that's a tough responsibility for you because i'm sure you have your personal favorites and people you may not like but when you come out every morning with those updates that's why you're great at what you do and i'm not saying it because you're sitting here because when you come on you're very even keeled you relay the information you try to keep your opinions out of it you'll get a little here and there but Overall, you're just relaying the overall, the nights, the feeds from the previous nights and giving people updates so that they can come to their own conclusions. Mm -hmm. And that's why you're doing what you're doing because you're good at it. Yeah, it, it, it is. It's, it's tough, especially because, uh, you know, people will get upset with with you when you don't, you know, echo what, what they want to. Like if I if I am the person that is like, well, you know, let's let's remember not to attack people. Let's mm. remember not to try and get people fired from their jobs. Oh God, yeah. That's people will be like, but they deserve to be. How dare you say that, Terrence? Yeah, I um, had people call my police department and email my police department. There was the the thing about Frankie with Victoria, mm. um, the rape joke he made, yeah. which which I called him out on. But then I was laughing afterwards. And again, some of that was taken out of context. But people got very offended by that, and people contacted my station. And yeah, I, I, uncalled for. I mean, unless it's like blatant something. I mean, guys, we gotta we gotta tone it down a little bit. We gotta tone it down a little bit. And I'm a, I'm a firm believer in that. Like, you know, let nature take its course. And 
you know, if there's something in there where someone does something that they assault someone or there's a blatant sign of some type of bigotry, racist, whatever it is, that's going to come out. We don't need to be contacting their family members, especially their family members. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm a firm believer in that because I've been on the other side of it. Yeah. I've never experienced that where they were like threatening my family. I, I unfortunately had a better experience, but even if I hadn't, I, I, I would hate to see that happen to anyone. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I mean, my perspective on that is that like you contacting somebody's job, that is you trying to insert yourself into the situation. Yeah. I think that's an ego thing personally. And I, I feel like you are trying to force a situation because when enough people contact uh, an employer, Oftentimes, the, it takes the choice away from them. They, they almost have to then take action. Oh yeah. Um, whereas if you uh, if you let them make the decision on their own, then then they will you know come to whatever conclusion they right. feel is is right, and they have a lot more information than you do about like you know. I, I think when people are taking the time to Google and find out where people work and do all that, it's 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 at that point it's unhealthy. Yeah. It's unhealthy. If you're taking time out of your day when the show ends to research and call employers and write letters it's a little unhealthy if it was that if it's that bad cbs is going to handle it exactly yeah. so you got to just trust them um so uh so yeah i mean and that's 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 sort of the fan base and it's it's a it's a strange place to be where and, and you know what i want you to always credit me from this point forward as being the reason why you got jump started though <laughs> yes, yeah, I, want, I want that like at the bottom, like brought to you by Derek Lavasser. Uh, that you'll you'll get a little, uh, <clears throat> there'll be um, yeah, little, an asterisk, and when you're in the Big Brother Hall of Fame as the announcers, the the what's the what's some of the some big announcers out there, Mike uh, for M, uh, NFL Monday Night Football. You don't seem like a football fan. I'm not uh, Al Michaels, Al Michael, oh, whoever it was. But anyways, you're in that category. When you're in the Hall of Fame, I want a little asterisk that <laughs> you know, R.I.P. Brian. What was his last name? Uh, Brian Lynch. Brian Lynch. Brian Lynch. Yeah. R.I.P. Brian Lynch. If, if not, it's for... unfortunate too because I heard he was a veteran. Yeah. On a positive note, I heard he was a veteran, and he, um, I appreciate his service to the country. And he is someone who had a love for the show, and pr very knowledgeable about yeah. the show. I was a, I was a huge fan. Yeah. Uh, of, very of, knowledgeable of the show. Him. I knew him before. Yeah. I knew him before I went on. I I had heard his you know podcast with mm -hmm. Rob, and um, I wish the best for him. I hope he's doing well in life. Um, but he is someone who I think got too invested in the characters and, and took it to an unhealthy level. And so hopefully it's an example for everyone to follow because by no means was it like my people coming after that got him in the position that he's mm -hmm. in now. Rob and I had a conversation where I didn't say, hey, you know, I want him gone. Who yeah. am I? Yeah. And I, and I, I can attest to that. Yeah. That, you know, it was Rob's, Rob's, Rob's decision and, 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 and Rob Brian's is, call. And yeah, that's why Rob is who he is. And that's why he does. He saw it as well. And he apologized to me, um, and, and he did what he felt felt was best for the company, mm -hmm. for the for the for the podcast. And so, um, again, I wish I wish no ill will on Brian. Again, he was more mad at me about the game itself, so that's fine. Yeah. And I hope he's in a good place, and I hope he's doing good things. And he'll take this when he probably hears this and twist it. But I I, I truly do wish nothing but the best for him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I feel like I feel like that is often what happens in in certain areas of the community where, you know, you are watching it as a show and you look at these people as characters, but I think what's happened, especially in the more recent seasons, is that that used to be mostly fine. Like, you'd, you'd see people on TV, they're characters, you talk about them at the water cooler uh, however you want because 
they're basically fictional. You'll never run into them. They'll never hear this conversation. You'll never be in their house. Exactly. Um, you'll, never, you'll never be in their house, you know, having, having water hanging out. Yes. Um, and it, it wasn't, it wasn't a big deal, but with the, with the advent of social media, with that becoming more of a thing, uh, like those discussions are getting louder and louder and being yeah. more directed. Now we have direct contact with these people and, but the problem is that the you have the perspective hasn't transitioned from they are TV characters to they are real people who I could be at their home speaking to. Yeah, uh, it's still that they're TV characters, yeah. and so people still treat them as such, and and that's where even if it's positive, it can still be kind of dehumanizing. Like mm-hmm. it can be overwhelming, and um, and that's you know that's part of what what I try to do with this podcast is to like. Be like, hey, guy, like this is a real person. Like I'm sitting right. in their house, and they have right. a real life outside of Big Brother, and right. um, you know they they are impacted by things just as you are. Yeah, and, um, it's a big, you know, it's a big point to get across, yeah. and it's it's never going to resonate with everyone. No, it's just it's just not. It's just unfortunate, but it's not. But the only argument I'd make for the people is that you know we're not actors, so when we're on the live feeds, that is a reflection of who we are. Mm-hmm. You know, they, there is some truth to. The way these guys are acting, I, I've been very vocal about the fact that I'm not a fan of Nick, mm-hmm. and it's it's never going to be at a level where I'm going after his family or friends. But you know, I'd be the first to tell him to his face when he got out. If I ran into him, I'm not a fan of you. Yeah, I'm not a fan of you. Paul and I didn't see eye to eye for on a lot of things, and partially that was because of the whole Paulie thing. It was a complete misunderstanding that he felt like I was sticking up for Paulie and didn't like him because of that. Because my connection to Cody, Paul and I had a run in. The day at seat, this is this has definitely never been said publicly. Paul will attest to this. Um, Nicole was getting engaged on the show, a surprise engagement, and it was myself, Paul, Josh. We were all there for that engagement, and I remember sitting in a dressing room, a green room, with Josh and Paul walked in, and Paul and I hashed out our differences right there, and it was a complete misunderstanding because he he came out and said, you know, I, I felt like you were defending Paul when there was supposedly going to be a you know, physical altercation between them. And I told him straight up, I didn't love some of the things he did on the show mm-hmm. as far as, you know, the way he played the game. But that was my opinion of his performance on the show. And I had no ill will towards him. And I wished him nothing. But we were on good terms. We're on good terms. You yeah. know, we we're fine. But Paul is someone who confronted me as well as I confronted him when we, we had that opportunity. Not everyone does that. Not everyone does that. But we had that opportunity. And, 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 and it's something where, to your point... We are all human beings. If you have something to say to someone, if you ever run into them, take your chance and say it in a politically, you know, the right way. But as far as going back to what we were talking about in this whole thing, as far as like attacking their family and their friends, find a place to do it. Be courteous to people. Understand that what they say on the feeds, some of it's taken out of context when it's reported. And we have to treat everyone uh, as humans at the end of the day. Yeah. I don't know exactly where I was going with all that, <laughs> to be honest. But well, I, I think I think Paul is interesting too. Uh, you know, I certainly don't know him now. I haven't talked to him uh, really at all. Um, I don't think I've ever been in, uh, done an interview with him. Uh, Can but, make that happen. But he is somebody that is on Twitter, you know, and he usually gets a lot of backlash. Like when he speaks out against bullying, people are like, well, Paul, you're a bully. I, we saw you on Big Brother 19. Um my response to that is usually like, but is he still? Like, even if even if you say he was in Big Brother nineteen, it's been a couple of years. Like yeah. people can change, but in the eyes of people who watch the show, that's who they that's who you are forever in right. their eyes. And, um, and that was where we were going with it. Yeah, you know, 
not judging people solely on their thing and me, like with me with Nick that's where I went with all of it like yeah. I don't love the way Nick plays I think there's some truth to the things he says I what really ticked me off was him saying he was going to spit in Kemi's face mm-hmm. um, not a fan of that never will be not going to happen and I don't think there's any that has no game strategy yeah. so if I were outside the house I would 100% tell Nick that if I had that chance if that's what came of it yeah. but I'm not judging him solely based on that if that makes sense yeah. so to, you're 100% right you know, you can say things in the heat of the moment inside that house that are not necessarily a true reflection of who you are. And even if they are, people can change. Yeah. So, yeah, I 100% agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you, once you're done with Big Brother, uh, you have now, you know, been doing other really cool things. Yeah. You, you retired uh, from your police work. Mm-hmm. And you're now doing, as you mentioned before, this uh, this show. Mm-hmm. Um how did that even happen? Like, was that something that you ever thought would happen? No. I, I mean, again, you guys saw me in the feeds. I never talked about being on television. Yeah. Never. You know, I was going back home, and I did. After Big Brother, I went back to being a police officer for three more years. And it's a long, kind of dragged out story, but basically an agent, Harry Gold, reached out to me after the show and said, hey, I think you have a career in television. And I said, I don't have any interest in doing Survivor, Amazing Race, or anything like that. He goes, I don't want you to do that. I think you should do a career in true crime. And so he flew me out to Los Angeles. I met with some companies and I said, listen, if something comes up that you think I, it would be fun and interesting, you know, let me know. And the OJ series came up. And contrary to what people believe, whoever watched it knows that I didn't think OJ was innocent. I was brought in to evaluate a theory of someone who thought OJ could be yeah. innocent. And uh, he said, how would you like to work one of the trials of the century and see if you can, you know, there's some truth to this, this theory. I said, that'd be pretty cool. And it's kind of evolved from there. I've been with Discovery ID now for three years and it's been fun and I've had the opportunity to kind of do what I love, but on a national level. Mm-hmm. So it's been cool, but I'm a realist. And you know, we just finished season two. There's no guarantee for season three. I mean, that may be my last go of it. I don't know. I truly don't know. And whatever happens is, is meant to happen, but it's been fun. I've met a lot of great people, both in the criminal justice field, but also families. Families who have been affected by these tragedies that honestly we talk about like our heroes you know these people are heroes Mm -hmm. i can't imagine losing a child and still functioning as strong as i think i am mentally i don't i don't know how they do it i don't know how they get out of bed every day i don't know how they do it i think just the 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 search for justice maybe it's like it's bigger than them now but like those are the real heroes like the people who are able to function on a daily basis after losing the thing that, that they find that's the most important to them it's unbelievable. And the fact that they're willing to put their story on television because they know there's a bigger meaning behind it. We're trying to solve these cases. You know, it's, it's an incredible, there's some incredible people out there and they're, they're a representation of those, those people. Way better than me, that's for sure. Is it, because I can, I can see this going two ways and maybe it's both. Is it, uh, does it sometimes drag you down to be immersed in so much tragedy all the time? Or, uh, or, and again, it might be both, uh, is, it, is it inspiring to, to see people who are able to, uh, you know, live through it and, and, and keep going on with their lives and sometimes, you know, see positive results and, and do positive things for people? It's exactly what you just said. It's both. And, and, I, and I, again, being in law enforcement, I see myself being emotionally affected by the stuff that happens at work, quote mm-hmm. unquote work. These shows, you know, you're out there. And, you know, this woman lost their, their son or daughter or husband, father lost his son or daughter. And I'm different when I get home. I don't even want to let my kids go to Walmart 
Um, this is before the shooting, by the way. I don't even want to let them go to anywhere without me because I'm so skewed by what I'm immersed in every day. Mm-hmm. And then to your point, there is that that level of inspiration you get from it where you go to these families and you hear them talk about their children that they've lost or their husband or wife that they lost. And when you come home, you have a different appreciation for your husband, your wife, your husband, my daughters in this case, you know, than you did before you left because you realize every night, every day that you're with them is a blessing and tomorrow isn't guaranteed. So it's a weird place to be in. Probably not healthy long term <laughs> for the mind. Yeah. Honestly, 1000% I've been affected by it in some good ways and in some bad ways. But it's kind of the burden I've chosen to carry. And, you know, I just I, I just live with it. <laughs> yeah. So so how does the how does the filming work? Do you film <clears throat> around here? Do you, do no, you fly over the country? To... Yeah, wherever the case is, we travel to that location mm-hmm. and we're there for seven days. But the investigation starts as soon as we decide to take on that case. And I'm right. at home. My office is upstairs. And I basically am in there for four or five hours a day, sometimes till three in the morning, looking up things, calling people, depending on what coast they're on. Um, I remember we did a case in Kauai this last season and, and they're on a completely different time zone. I think it's like eight hours behind us. And I was on the phone at like four or five in the morning and my wife would yell at me to shut the fuck up <laughs> because I was waking the kids up, you know? So yeah. I would be outside on the porch talking to them. But um, um, yeah, so it starts beforehand and then it continues afterwards. Like I've continued with these families, like you can call any of them right now and they're going to tell you that like they can call my phone at any time and talk to me about the case. And if there's updates or things we can do, we're still doing it, even though the cameras aren't rolling. I yeah. just got back from Pittsburgh for one of them. So um, I'm, I'm invested in these cases. Now there's 14 of them total that I've worked for the show um, that I'm invested in until the end. And there may never be an end to mm-hmm. be to be fair. But, you know, anything that we can do to push the ball forward, TV or no TV, I'm going to do it because that's just that's just who I am. Do you think there'll be a, like a, a point in which you reach the limit of like your bandwidth to, to be able to stand Man, I'm going deep. I've had these conversations with my wife because there are times where I just want to do something completely different. Because mm-hmm. I, I do consider myself to be kind of a creative person, you know, like I, I'd, I'd like to do different, you know, you have different outlets to, that aren't so morbid, so to speak. And there are moments where um, I just want to completely change the game and do something different. Like, I don't want to say the word normal, but just like do like something that's less intense. Yeah. And, you know, I have passions to do other things. Like I said, I wrote a book and I do have other creative things that I like to do. But as of right now, I I do love what I do. But yeah, there are moments I'm, I'm always second guessing what I'm doing. I put myself in a lot of dangerous situations even now. You know, and I, again, it always comes back to children, you know, it's not just about you anymore. It's about the people you care about. And there are people out there right now that want to hurt me. There's no doubt about it. If they had the opportunity, they would want to hurt me. And that means they'd want to hurt my family. And the truth is I'm putting myself in those situations. So a question I'm constantly struggling with is, is it worth it? Or is it time to let someone else who has less to lose take on because there are other people that can do it yeah it's a question i'm constantly struggling with and to answer your question i don't know i don't know if i'll ever leave it but it definitely it definitely crosses my i think anybody in their choices in their career and in life should constantly reevaluate where they are and if they're making the right have you have you ever felt like uh like your family has been in danger yeah they have the reason we're in this house right now is because i had hits put on me and and after um you know even my first season you know the first episode we did was in Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. 
you want to find the bottom line is if you want to find me, you can find me. And, and, you know, um, there are definitely situations where I get nervous when we're out in public where they may not come after me, so to speak. They may go after someone I care about more mm-hmm. than myself. So yeah, it's a, it's a constant internal struggle and by no means do I have it all figured out. I don't know. I don't know there, you know, I don't, as much as this may not sound like it, I could give a shit about being on television. Yeah. I really, really could. This may be my last season. I don't have anything in the works right now. This could be it. And that's perfectly fine with me. I had no ambition to be on television. The only benefit to it is the financial resources to go into these cases and actually do something about it. Cause a lot of it comes down to money. Yeah. But I could give a shit about being on television. So if this is the last thing I do and I go back to, and I go from here to selling cars, if I'm happy doing it, that's completely fine with me. I, I won't try to stay in the quote unquote limelight. Yeah. You know, you guys see it on social media. I'm not someone who like is constantly posting or doing, I mean, it's just not me. Mm-hmm. It's a struggle for me to do the camera stuff. So you know, I don't know where I'm going to be. I, I have a feeling there's going to be a change because I feel like every five or 10 years, I have this big dramatic change in my life where I have to do something different to keep myself motivated. And I don't know what that is. Maybe it's just an evolution from what I'm doing now. But I mean, dude, 35 years old, I've been, <laughs> I've been a kid struggling in college to being a cop at 20, to doing undercover missions, to being on Big Brother, to having investigating OJ, to traveling the country, calling out some corrupt police work, to now I'm talking Big Brother again. Yeah. I, it's so freaking weird. Yeah. It's so weird. It doesn't make sense, mm-hmm. any of it. It's so all over the place. But it's what I like. So you know, I'm going to roll with it. I don't know. <laughs> well, how, how do, how do your, your wife and kids like uh, see it? Do they uh, – like, do you do – like what, what is their perspective? Uh, my wife, it probably would rather me do something else. Yeah. Um, she supports me, mm-hmm. but I think she would rather me do something else. Cause I think she sees the burden that I carry internally that maybe I, even I don't see. Mm-hmm. So when I come home from filming an episode, you would think that when I come home, it's like happy time, but I'm still thinking about what we just did and what can still be done. So I'm here, but I'm not yeah. here completely. And my kids, they're six and three. So they're too young to really know. They just see dad on TV. My youngest one, Peyton, loves Big Brother because the colors and stuff. So yeah. the only thing that's, that screwed her up is a couple episodes ago, they had the squirrel that was bagging people. Oh, yeah. It's ruined her life. Oh, no. It's fucking ruined her life. Honestly, because now she doesn't want to sleep in her own bed because she thinks the squirrel's going to Oh, no. Her. Swear to God, this is a true story. She like was watching every episode with me. <clears throat> I told her that I was on the show. I played the sloppy, the snowman competition that I was in. Mm-hmm. She thought it was the best thing ever. Like seeing me fall and hurt myself, like could not have been more happy yeah. about it. And then the squirrel episode happened and it's traumatized her. Do you tell her they would, that squirrel wasn't really bad? Yes. Her? She doesn't care. Yeah. He's real. And he's going to take her. <laughs> oh. He's going to take her. So she's like, she's scared to watch the show now. Yeah. So the fakes, big brother. <laughs> so they don't, they don't really know. They know I'm on TV. They know the name of the show, but they don't know what I do. They do know I'm a police officer still in their minds and yeah. that I protect people against bad guys. That's the extent of it. They don't, they don't understand the complexity of like what I'm actually doing. They're only, you know, Tony's only six. Yeah. But my wife, I think if she had a choice, she would probably one, want me home more often because I'm on the road a lot, but also not in such a dangerous position because she doesn't obviously want me to, to lose me, but also doesn't want anything to happen to our family. 
What What do you think he would do if uh, if this all? Yeah, Taryn. I don't know. I honestly don't know. I yeah. really don't know. I have so many things that I you know like to do. I'd love to do a nonprofit, honestly. And I know that again. Oh, here he goes. He's, but I, you know, I see a lot of uh, need for finances when it comes to DNA testing and how many cases are being solved now because of DNA testing. And a lot of cases are not being retested because the police departments can't afford it for a hair to test one hair. It's like two grand. Uh. So it can get very expensive and you can send it to the FBI, which is free, but their backlog is like incredible. It can take six months to a year before you get a result, if any. And so I'd love to do a nonprofit where we're raising money to help out police departments that are trying to, you know, look at cold cases. But as far as me personally, what I, what I am going to do, I honestly don't know. Like I said, if I would, if you were to tell me that I, I would have been on big brother and that I would be doing what I've done so far, I'd be like, you're crazy. I thought I, when I signed up to be a cop, I thought that was, I was going to do my 20 years there and retire and fish every day. Yeah. So to be in the position I'm in right now, I don't even know how I got here. It's all a blur. Yeah. It's all a blur, dude. It really is. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy. Just like the, the direction that life can sometimes take you. Forks in the road, man. I never thought I would be sitting in your house talking it, to you. Right? Isn't it weird? I, I, wa- I, 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 that, I watched your season before I was even podcasting, and uh, and and now I'm, I'm sitting in We're your house. sitting here chilling. Yeah. Just hanging out. It's weird. It's weird, but that's what's cool about life, right? Yeah. Honestly, it's fucking cool, man. It is. Because you, you really do... You write your own path, man. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, there are some, ops, you know, barriers to entry or obstacles that get in your way sometimes. But like, if you really want it bad enough and you have a passion for it, things kind of have a way of working themselves out. And it's like, it's just, life is a cool experience, man. Like, and again, looking back on it, you know, will you be proud of what you did? And will you be like, that was a good, some pretty cool stories. Yeah. I think we got some pretty cool stories already. Yeah. And we're still very young. Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot more chapters to write and um, I'm looking forward to it because I honestly don't know what tomorrow's going to bring, but yeah. I'm excited to find out. Well, uh, I would love to, uh, to chat again. Yes, absolutely. Uh, some, some uh, down the line once, once those chapters have been written. Absolutely. Likewise, yeah. who knows? We could be in a position a year from now where you're having some, I'm at your studio <laughs> because you're this big guru now who does like a million different podcasts and you're just making millions and I'm just going to hang on your yacht with you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you know, you, 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 uh, you were there before, yes. before I made it big. I so. was the reason you got started. Yeah. Again, I want a smaller yacht. Yeah. You, you know, you'll get, you'll get your own yacht, you know, <laughs> size. We'll, 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 we'll talk discuss about it. it. Yeah. We'll decide. We'll do based on how many zeros you have in your salary. We'll yeah. Now I appreciate you coming down. This is cool, man. This is cool. And I, I hope, I hope more house guests, open themselves up to doing it because a lot of them love the show beforehand. And I think as a house guest, it's easy to get caught up in like the quote unquote short, you know, fame. Yeah. It's not lasting with big brother. And I, you know, I, I, I hear sometimes that we're, uh, we're not accessible. Yeah. And I, and I think that's, that's a little bit of a concern because we're, we're not, we're not famous. Mm-hmm. We're not, we're on television, but we're not famous. And if you really did enjoy the show, don't, don't turn your back on the show that got you into the position that you're in. And I was guilty of that to an extent as well. My reasons were a little different because I went back to being a police officer, but Mm -hmm. you know, there were points where I was like, Oh, I'm not going to do that now. You know, I'm above that, you know, and nobody's above it. We're all, we're here because of people like yourself who promote our, the show and talk about it and create this strong fan base. And I hope this type of thing is, is something that continues for a long time because 
I love this today because it was less about Big Brother, more about life. Yeah. And it's kind of cathartic in a way. And I think a lot of people that have played Big Brother would benefit from this. Truthfully, I'm not just saying it. Yeah. So I hope I hope I can attest to this for whatever my word's worth. I think I think this is a good experience and hopefully this is something I know you've been doing the current show for a long time, but does it usually get like this deep? You know, it, it depends on the person. Um, well, how willing they are to speak. Yeah, how, you know, and, and, you know, everybody has their own level of comfort with, you know, how much they want to yeah. you know, open up. But the one, do, you, do you see a difference with the in, in person? Oh, yeah. It's, Someone, it's much better in person, yeah. Right? It's tough for financial reasons, logistics, and all that. But, I, you know, again, if it continues to grow, this might be something that becomes something, you know. Yeah. Pretty cool. Well, I appreciate you having me. Thanks. Thank you so much for uh, for the invite. Uh, oh, really, uh, really meant a lot, and cool. it's, I'm I'm really glad that I that I had the opportunity to come. Thank you for thank you for coming down, and don't tell anybody my address. Yeah, th- thank you for your trust. <laughs> All right, bro. See you guys later. All right, thank you guys for joining us. Uh, I will see you next time. Parents asking questions. Parents finding out. Parents looking deeper. What it's all about It's the Tyrone Show So you